Welcome to the Change Africa podcast, where we bring you stories of inspiring individuals and thought leaders leading Africa's transformation. I'm your host, Isaac Kujudenu Abwa, and together with my co-host, Daniel Merki, we'll be exploring diverse perspectives, challenges, and opportunities for growth and development on the continent every week. Each episode, we delve into a different aspect of African life, featuring knowledgeable and engaging guests who provide unique insights and a fresh perspective on the issues affecting the continent across a wide range of topics from economics to culture and social issues. So whether you're already well-versed in African affairs or you're just starting to explore this fascinating and complex part of the world, the Change Africa podcast is an excellent resource for you. Sit back and enjoy another thought-provoking discussion that will inform and challenge you to expand your understanding of Africa. Hello everyone, my name is Isaac Kujure Noabua and you're welcome to the Change Africa podcast. I'm here with my usual co-host, Daniel Murky, and today is another opportunity for us to talk about Africa and the people who are the helm of Africa's evolution development. And we're excited to have the founder and CEO of Affinity Africa, who doubles as a tech maverick, an art enthusiast and collector, someone who has been very instrumental to across Baden Light Life, sits on the board of very influential organizations that are trying to move the arts forward and is a fan of sports. So he says on his, well, I think apparently everywhere that he is an Iron Man. The Iron Man, for those that don't know, is a sporting competition of a sort that involves so many different sports. I think Tarek Mogani, our guest for today, also looks like an Iron Man in person because he has all the arts and science going, probably left with a sports car. So we're going to find out in the podcast if he has a podcast so that he'll get the full Iron Man profile going for him. But our guest today is Tarek Mogani, and we're excited to have you, Tarek, on the Chain Africa podcast. Thank you so much, Isaac. Thanks for having me and love the intro. Love the intro. I'm blushing. I would like to start off from your foundations. You are Lebanese with Ghanaian origins. What does that mean for those who don't know you? Yeah, uh, I'm actually fourth generation Ghanaian. So my great grandparents moved to Ghana from Lebanon. Um, my grandparents were born in Ghana, parents were born in Ghana, and I was also raised in Kumasi. So by blood in a way, and also by upbringing, I define myself as Ghanaian. I left Ghana when I was 12. I was shipped off to the UK to go to school and then came back 10 years ago to start exploring what I wanted to do. You know, as my mom told me, you need to send the ladder back, ladder back down. You know, you've had such a, a great life in the UK, time to come home. So let's explore that life in the UK. For me, your profile is very interesting because you did a PhD of all things and of all places, Cambridge in material science and engineering. Can you tell us that trajectory and what that looked like and how somehow you magically got to a place where you're building tech and not the tech that you did necessarily, but you're building tech for small businesses. Absolutely. And I mean, I think I owe a lot to my privileged upbringing and the fact that my parents gave me the opportunity to explore certain things. So as a kid growing up in Kumasi, I asked my mom for a chemistry set for Christmas. She didn't know what to do with that, but obviously she entertained it, you know, and she got it for me. And she nurtured me and encouraged me. You know, my parents did, and they were able to as well. So when they shipped us off at the age of 12, I went to school. It was a bit of an unusual situation because I skipped a year in Ghana 
at school and I skipped another year in the UK. So I actually started university. I was 16 turning 17 when I started university, which was a little bit unusual. And when I graduated from my first degree in engineering, I kind of looked around the entire class. There were 90 of us and we all knew the same thing. And I thought to myself, I don't like this. I want to be, I want to be the master. I want to like be the master of something. I want to know a lot of one thing and have a specialty and decided on the back of that to do a PhD. So that was sort of the earlier kind of decisions of kind of going deep into a subject matter, which is quite important. I had a very influential professor at university, a woman called Judith Driscoll. She's a professor at Cambridge now. She was leaving Imperial College, which is where I did my undergrad. And she told me, apply to university, apply to Cambridge for a PhD. I did. I didn't ever think I would get in. I mean, this is a small boy growing up in Kumasi, you know, kind of arriving in the big city in London, you know, going to a strong university. I always sort of felt I wasn't worthy. And my parents always said, apply. If you don't get in, at least you know that you didn't get in. But if you don't apply, 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, you don't want to have that doubt. You know, what if I applied, you know, and have any regrets in your life? So I applied, I got in, and I ended up doing basically my PhD in, in physics, uh, thanks to, you know, Ghana, thanks to my parents, and also thanks to my professors at Imperial as well, too. Yeah, I think Tarek oversimplifies our story because what the audience don't know, or what Tarek is not saying, at least from what I know on his Instagram, sorry, on his LinkedIn profile, is that Tarek went to the UK and did Imperial College and applied directly from undergrad to the university in 2002. A lot of people were not doing that in 2002. Yeah. So Tarek must have been very, very smart to have been able to achieve that and finish a PhD in three years. Less than three years. I wasn't allowed to graduate because by law, I needed three years to graduate. I actually finished it earlier than that. <laughs> but also Isaac, I'm very upset you're calling me old. That's what you're doing, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just trying to get people to appreciate that when you say the story like that, obviously the, the, the opportunity for you to have come from that bringing the privilege, all of that, but you also have to be incredibly smart to get into Cambridge. Anybody in Cambridge has to be, and also to pursue the PhD in the course that you did. It's just not only smart, you need to be also very hardworking because I know a bunch of my colleagues who've done PhDs and even the most brilliant of them, to complete it faster is about how much hard work you want to, really how much struggle and sleepless nights you want to put yourself through. And, and, you know, you raise a very good point. And I want to talk, I want to talk about hope as well, too, because, you know, I know that Ghana is going through a very difficult period at the moment. The whole world is. And, and generally in our parts of the world, when the world's decline, you know, when our GDP goes up, it goes up a lot. And, and when inflation goes up, it also goes up a lot, right? We have very volatile and non-resilient economies, which is part of the reason why we decided to set up this bank. But what I wanted to say is that there's so much opportunity now. And when I see like the, the younger generation that are younger than me, Smart people, hardworking people exist everywhere. We've seen it in Ghana. I saw it in the 80s growing up. I saw it in the 90s growing up in the early 2000s, 2010s, and now 2020s as well, too. The one key differentiator is that opportunities are opening up more and more. The big difference between me and, and you know, kind of growing up in the 90s, going to university in the 90s versus, you know, the current cohort that are going to university is there was less opportunity for people of my generation. So you needed that extra push. You needed that extra support. And we also needed to not feel small, that we didn't deserve it. Because, you know, I had parents that told me, it doesn't matter that you're Arab and everyone around you in the UK is white and, and whatnot, and you have a strange name and a strange accent. Go for it. Why don't you deserve it as well, too? I had that empowerment and I was lucky. I was really, really lucky for that. You're seeing more and more of that now, which is incredible. You're seeing it in the art scene. You're seeing it in sports. 
You're seeing it in the tech scene as well too, which is fantastic. And you're seeing the world look at our part of the world and actually supporting and enabling entrepreneurs and young generations of actually uh, reaching bigger opportunities that historically maybe would have been less and less frequent for us as well too. So I was incredibly lucky. Yes, you have to work hard. Yes, you have to push yourself. That talent existed back then. It does exist now, but the opportunities are greater and the spotlight on Africa is even bigger now. That's incredible. And you started off that career working at Deloitte, you work in asset management. You've just had a very great career. What was the incentive to come back home? Because you didn't need to, I'm sure you were having a good life. And for the most people, for most of the people that come back home, irrespective of the fact that they were born here, they had an upbringing here, they are hit with a shock of new realities of challenges that they have been estranged for for a very long time. And so to want to embrace that difficulty because of a certain change that you want to bring is always a difficult thing. And I always want to uncover why people want to do that. There's a lot of good, but there's also a lot of struggle. And why do people want to embrace that struggle? Absolutely. And that struggle, I mean, I've been back 10 years and I face that struggle on a daily basis. Uh, I think we all do, and it doesn't go away. But what I wanted to say is that we have a responsibility, you know, as Africans. Um, the one thing that I was missing in my career, on paper, it looked fantastic. I was earning decent money. It was during the financial crisis, the crash in 2008, where my career sort of like started really picking up. Um, people were getting fired, so I felt somewhat trapped. I couldn't like quit my job and do something because there was no protection. It's kind of a difficult environment like it is right now. So I, I felt like I was stuck in that role, and maybe perhaps I was stuck in that role for a bit too long. The one thing that I noticed after staying in a career like that for almost a decade was that I lacked purpose. You know, I was operating in a country where jobs were available to the majority, where there were lots of opportunities as well, too. But um, what was very, very obvious is that I didn't have a self-fulfillment. I didn't have a purpose. I didn't have a drive. And I knew, by the way, Isaac, from day one, that whatever experience I garnered when I worked for that asset manager, when I worked at Deloitte, I always wanted to come back home and have an impact with my life. There were two people at university that influenced me. There's two Americans, one Nigerian of origin, an incredible woman that works in the health tech space now in New York. They did international development studies. And I was doing my degree in physics and they taught me about how you can have an impact. CSR, kind of uh, financial inclusion, that sort of drive. You can actually create a socially responsible business that's a for-profit organization that's scalable and sustainable that has an impact. So those seeds, you know, when you're young, you're very kind of influenced by your environment. You know, whether it's your parents, your teachers, your peers at school, those seeds were planted in my brain. And so throughout my entire career in the UK, I always thought, what can I do to unleash the experience that I've had, the contacts that I've made to actually go back home and do something and have my cake and eat it too, you know, have a decent job, have decent impact, build a scalable business, make some money, but also feel proud about what we do. So the plan was always there. Um, unfortunately, I, I stayed maybe a bit too long in the UK and I should have come back sooner, but the financial crisis made, made me do that. So I'll blame, I'll blame that for that. So what was the journey of coming back like? You come to Ghana, you start exploring what is possible? Why finance? Why the banking industry? Why build a digital bank? Um, that's what I want to explore first. But then obviously we'll talk about some of the adjacent work that you did. But you saw a lot of opportunities that are there. Why is that that? I mean, the truth is that a lot of people come back and one of the low-hanging fruits they want to tackle is say real estate. It's probably easy to get money in. Why not do that? Why a bank? 
very much rooted in my return was purpose. And, and that, I would say, influenced 80% of my decision. 20% was what about what I wanted from the company, i.e. I wanted a lifestyle where I would work with people. I like people. I like a team. Also like to travel. So there were some sort of influences there. I think maybe a lot of returnees kind of probably put 80% of the focus on that. For me, 80% was kind of purpose-driven and 20% was sort of personal. But it wasn't a decision that I made in the UK and then landing here. In the UK, I wanted a divorce. You know, I literally wanted to step away from my job and recover. I arrived on Ghanaian soil, depressed. I'm not joking. I got here, I was burnt out. I was working 6 a.m. till midnight every single day, including weekends. I was on a long haul flight twice a week. When I was doing the Ironman races, I would sometime com- sometimes come home at like 10 p.m., get on my, on my stationary bike, eat whilst I was on a bike for three hours till one in the morning training for an Ironman. I mean, I was doing the stupidest things you can imagine because I thought it was a superhero, right? I arrived on Ghanaian soil, burnt out, tired, depressed, you name it. But I had my family around me, my brothers around me, my youngest brother who I hadn't lived with because I left Ghana when he was one year old. And all I did is I gave myself some space for six months to breathe and to recover. I took a month off and I went stayed in eczema. I slept. I just felt the sea air on my skin. I ate local food, you know, fresh fish, pineapples, etc. I slept when I wanted to sleep. I cried when I wanted to cry. And then as I was coming out of this hole and feeling a bit more optimistic and a bit more recovered, I started exploring many opportunities. I explored beekeeping. Believe it or not, it was hilarious. It was a sort of uh, um, a, a cooperative of women in the Volta region set up by this missionary nonprofit guy that he, he had set it up. There's an article that I wrote about in the Huffington Post. I'll send it to you guys. Then uh, this was, again, 10 years ago. I worked for an ICT provider, a, a tech incubator as a, a shark, you know, in their VC kind of panel. I worked for a consumer lender, a payday lender, a microfinance institution, a real estate fund, an industrial park that was being built uh, by DFI funding. And all I kept on seeing when I was speaking to entrepreneurs, and my passion is firmly within the entrepreneurial space. So, you know, entrepreneurs, as we define them, including artists and also athletes, I kept on realizing that what they needed to grow was actually access to banking services. So affordable banking, including payments, as well as loans. So I kind of thought to myself, you know, that that sort of 10 years of being in the space in the UK, focusing on strategy and banking, the impact that I wanted to have to support tens of thousands of businesses, I can actually have my cake and eat it too. I would, I, I then went on this journey of actually setting up a bank so that I could build something with enterprise value, but on top of that, provide impact uh, to Ghana and to social and economic development, because what we do at Affinity is absolutely massive from an impact side too. Let's talk about Iron Man, because you said you were preparing for an Iron Man. Where did your sports interest come from? When people tell me about sport, I'm always fascinated because well, Daniel likes to brag that he's one of the fittest people probably in Ghana, you know, and he goes on all these ridiculous runs. I don't believe him because I've never seen it. But I like to tell people that I have no sport gene. So I'm always very fascinated to see people who are not career athletes, but, you know, just have a fun and interest for doing sport. I hope I can get that baptism soon myself. But why did you want to do Ironman? It didn't actually start with Ironman. Believe it or not, I was this skinny kid at school, two years younger than everyone. Everyone in Ghana, you know, we play football. We do those sort of things. 
We don't do long distance stuff. And also, it's not really friendly to do long distance when you're at school. You know, how can you go on a three hour run during your PE break on a Wednesday afternoon, right? Uh, so it was, it was at university where I was kind of struggling a bit. I wanted sort of a release. I was, I was kind of dealing with designing lab projects. Some of my lab work wasn't working. You know, I was kind of going to the lab on the weekend, setting projects up, then going back at like two in the morning to make sure that it was working fine. At one point, I wanted a release, you know, out of this frustration. And Cambridge is a beautiful town. There's a beautiful river that kind of runs through it with these beautiful colleges. So I started going on walks. I started going on runs. And then all of a sudden, I realized that what I enjoyed wasn't the short distance sprinting, that 100 meters that we do at school, you know, with the, also the spoon and the lime and all that sort of stuff and the bags on sports day. It was really being able to be free and to meditate. You know, kind of running was my meditation. So I would find myself going running along the river, and we could because the weather was easier than you know running in Ghana. I could run along the river for hours at a time. And all of a sudden, after 15 minutes, when you get into this rhythm, my mind was free. I don't run with music, right? I, all these problems that I had about trying to solve that equation or trying to put a chemistry project together, you know, whatever, it didn't solve it, but I, I got back to my desk feeling more optimistic. So it then became part of my daily life. On the back of all that running, because I was a novice and I didn't really know what I was doing, I started getting injuries, um, went to my doctor. My doctor told me, try swimming. It'll help, you know, balance yourself out. I was like, swimming? You know, I grew up in Ghana. We don't swim. What are you talking about? So I um, went to our local swim swimming pool, saw a bunch of people swimming. I looked at the coach and I said, could you teach me how to swim? She goes, I'm not a swimming coach. I'm a triathlon coach. I was like, what's that? She goes, you swim, you bike, you run. I was like, oh, that sounds fun. Can I do that? She goes, um, yeah, I guess. So, you know, as an entrepreneur, you kind of just jump right into it. And that was the start. I then asked her, what is the most difficult triathlon you can do? She goes, difficult how? I said, endurance wise. She goes, well, an Ironman. I was like, what is that? She goes, well, it's a four kilometer swim. It's a 180 kilometer bike ride. And then you run a four, full 42 kilometer marathon at the end of it. I swear I'd never done a triathlon in my life. And I looked at her and it goes, I go, can I do one in six months? She goes, you don't know how to swim or ride a bike. I said, oh, I learned. You know? And honestly, I signed up and I did my first Ironman on the back of that. It was Ironman Nice in France. And I've done over 100 triathlons now. You know, I was a national athlete for Ghana. So when I came back uh, 10 years ago, I signed up in the National Sports Authority, set up the Ghana Triathlon Federation on the back of that. And it was such a, such a wonderful part of my, of my life and really gave back a lot uh, to me and also to Ghana as well. It was wonderful. But again, fully out of coincidence. It wasn't a plan on day one. It was just people around me influencing me and supporting me to do that too. And also probably good genes, Tarek, because I, I, can't, I can't do six months to... Um, but you know what, Isaac, what was really interesting super. is I feel like there's a sport for everyone out there. I mean, for God's sake, darts are sports apparently, right? You know, you don't think of that as a sport because... So I think there's always a sport there out for everyone. It's about being given the opportunity to actually explore them. And I was, again, very lucky when it comes to my career as a scientist, in, in, in asset management, in tech, you know, even with, with, with art and also with athleticism. It was all about being given the opportunity as an individual who's curious to actually explore those. No, it's true because I found myself in the UK a couple of weeks ago and I tried golfing and I think I like it. I still don't have my swing quite right yet, but yeah, it's all about the opportunity. But the truth is where I was, which was over a weekend at a at a country town, 
there were at least seven golf courses, like there were golf courses everywhere. And I think you can count the number of golf courses in Ghana. So if you had an interest for golfing, you can see how that will be very much accelerated by your very gorgeous environment in Ghana. So my dad's obsessed with golfing. You know, we grew up in Kumasi and my dad played at the uh, Ashanti uh, golf course all the time. And he's actually on the board now in his, in his retirement. He plays in Accra pretty much every day, frankly. And then there's a social element of going to the club and drinking beers and having kebabs with your friends afterwards, which is also quite fun, right? Well, I kind of relate to what you say around the long distance running, which I can't do. I more like do long distance walks, very, very casual walks, but it brings so much clarity to me that I've said that perhaps the best yet to be made invention is something that can simulate walking and give people the ability to just do the, you know, kind of do the walk, but not do the walk and think because there's a lot of clarity in just having the motions going in and get drifted out from you know the pressures of everyday life and just having clarity in your own being i think it's it's one of the things i've found that's very good for me that if if i'm burdened by anything i just go for a long walk by the time you come back it's not solving the problem but somehow i mean you are the scientist there is something that comes out of that look you're practicing presence right because you have to be in the moment when you're doing something like that there's a there is silence there is focus it's sort of when you're taking a shower and there's running water in the background, you know, you have, it, it, it has that element of making, helping you focus so that you get your best ideas, you know, they say out when you're taking a shower and stuff and we've all kind of experienced it. What I also wanted to say is that it's also very important for you as a high kind of achieving individual, which I think artists, sports people, entrepreneurs, you know, kind of, we all are, you know, you guys are entrepreneurs as well too, with everything that you do. When I mentioned that story about when I was getting injured with my knee um, and my doctor telling me to swim, I have a very... I have an amazing doctor. He could have easily said, stop running. That'll stop your knee from hurting, right? Because that's the obvious thing to say as a doctor. But you know what he told me? He goes, I know your personality type. I know that you're driven. I know that you're super alpha as well, too. And what ends up happening is imagine a gazelle in the middle of the Serengeti. They hear like a rustle in the leaves or in the grass. And then they can see from like eye shot that there's, you know, like a lion about to pounce on them. What happens? Your, your adrenaline shoots up and flight or fight basically kicks in and you run away. Now take that same scenario and put that gazelle in a cage and they can't move. What happens with all that energy? Where does it get dispersed to, right? Where do you spend it? Where do you create that focus? He used that analogy and he goes, we need to get you back to running and we need to figure out what's causing it, get you to a physiotherapist, you know, get you to swim so that you, your, your core strengths are better and you kind of focus on other ideas. He was very uh, progressive and I was very lucky that he didn't just tell me stop running and find another sport. When we've spoken about sport on the podcast, it's always been very enlightening because it's transcended just it being an activity of you know people kicking balls or getting their adrenaline rushing. We had this very brilliant conversation with now the president of the Basketball Association, Basketball Africa League in Africa. And his origins into sports really was from a social developmental perspective and how I think we retell that story every day of how, for example, a 13-year-old gets an opportunity into some small training camp and how that changes the fortunes of an entire village, entire towns, communities, even countries. Um, but we are not always intentional about it as that is an avenue for sport to be able to create change. And I like how you're bringing another perspective of intentionality that it's not just the running, but when you do these things, it helps you gain clarity, it improves your mental health, etc. 
And I'd love to tell you a bit more about the Ghana Triathlon Federation, but I think, Daniel, you wanted to say a couple of things first as a sports Yeah, it's just, I, I just have a quick question. I, I'm wondering when you're running your next triathlon or Ironman. So I'm in my, God bless you, Daniel. Isaac's already said that I'm old. So I, I, I've, I hung my hat up a very long time ago. You know, I, I got to ninth place in the World Championships and I knew that I couldn't beat that time. And as someone who's quite competitive, I thought, well, there's no point in racing anymore. So I actually train every single day. I went for a bike ride this morning, probably go for a run tomorrow. If you want to join, let's go together. But I think you're probably fitter than I am now. <laughs> I'm not racing anymore, unfortunately. I'd love to tell you a bit more about the Ghana Triathlon Federation, the work that we did, sort of the end of my quote unquote, like, you know, professional athletic career. But it's not rocket science when it comes to sports. We shouldn't romanticize it. I think, you know, saying that it's this wonderful kind of development thing and we should do it because it's amazing for us as athletes and we can send that person from the village to like, a, you know, an Ivy League university. All that stuff will happen, but we need to approach all these problems with intentionality. The UK had terrible cyclists when I grew up, but all of a sudden, the last eight years, we've seen people more, you know, 10, whatever, 12 years, we've seen a lot of these athletes now winning, you know, from Bradley Wiggins to Mark Cavendish, you know, it's really incredible what's happened. It's not rocket science. If you invest in sports, you get good athletes. Simple. It's really as simple as that. So taking that intentional framework, I, I ran the Gunner Triathlon Federation as the CEO for five years before I stepped down to kind of focus on affinity. When we, 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 we sort of said, let's register it as an, as an association under the NSA. Um, let's ratify it. So we become the first national race. So it's not a like private event that's being put together. Let's subsidize it ourselves. And let's see who turns up because at least we have a benchmark, right? I got into, we got the University of Ghana to like support us. So they gave us the premises for free for a couple of hours, closed it down on a Sunday morning. We got the pool as well to, you know, our friends, family friends gave us like rotting pieces of wood for the finish line. I got someone to donate an old kind of expired can of blue paint. We got there at two in the morning. My co my co-founder and I, Bawa Fusaini, we were kind of painting the, the masks and whatnot. We looked like Smurfs when the sun came out. We were covered in blue paint. Anyway, so the masks came up. People turned up. It was 12 people, two women, one guy with one leg. We're like, oh, what's going to happen here? You know, we came with your own bikes. We kind of got bikes from other people. But we had a benchmark. We had a start. And we got a race in place. We figured out what we needed to do to make sure that it was scalable. And we started growing it. And over a four-year period, we grew to over 400 athletes. We had an inflatable finish line. We had timing mats. We basically had athletes that were doing just the swim, who were, who were you know, relay races, people who got excited from doing the swim and learned how to bike, that were then moving up to do the full triathlon as well, too. We brought in athletes from across the world and across Africa to come and compete so that our local athletes could see what the benchmark was. And we ended up basically sending an athlete of ours to the Commonwealth Games. He qualified for the Commonwealth Games, which was amazing as well, too. Because we took a measured approach, we built a strategy over five years, and every year when we hit our deliverables and our benchmarks, we grew and we expanded and we invested more money as well, too. And it was a measured approach for sponsors, which is very important. And that same framework you can replicate in the arts and tech and other industries as well, too. Just being measured in your approach to your executing your strategy. What I'd like to know is, after your leadership, after all the work that you've done, making sure that you could build that, what is happening now? Because continuity is usually a problem here in the African continent. And what has continued? Is the work that you started still ongoing? What are the progress that have been made? Are even higher benchmarks being hit now? So actually, after I left, 
they organized the first African regional championships in Ghana, and it happened in Ghana. So that was a huge, they got ratified from the ITU and they organized a regional race, which was amazing. And it, and it happened at the, at the Crossport Stadium with the bike along the beach and then a swim in the beach as well too. So um, it's nice to see that the sport is growing. And a lot of the athletes have now traveled. They live in, outside of Ghana. They've, they've gotten positions at universities and jobs elsewhere. And they're still racing for Ghana professionally in other races around the world. So it's really nice to see what has happened on the back of all that. And hopefully, just like me, they'll come back eventually, send the ladder back down and kind of grow the sport as well in Ghana. I mean, that's an incredible story of what you've done in that space. We'll come back into banking is eventually, but how do you, what is your connection with nightlife and, you know, starting front back? Were you a party guy? Is this, was the one even too much alcohol or? Actually, it was all about the creative scene. It had nothing to do with actually partying and drinking. I've never been that person. I've never, I think the last time I went to a nightclub was maybe about 20 years ago. I'm not joking. I'm quite shy. Um, I like having conversations like this, you know, a group of people at a dinner table. I don't drink that much, but I sort of define entrepreneurship into two categories. The entrepreneurship that you tell, the job that you tell your mom that you want to do, and where your mom says, yes, great, do it. You know, so whether you're not an entrepreneur, you're a salaried person, i.e. be a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer, or I want to start a business in manufacturing, all the way from, you know, kind of selling tomatoes on the side of the road or building a bank, right? Those are entrepreneurial journeys. We can't kind of villainize, romanticize it the structures and processes are still the same. Then there are those things that you tell your parents that you want to study at school where they were like, mm, no, be a lawyer, you know? <laughs> and it's usually the creative space. Or if you want to be an athlete, I mean, you know, we've all heard the stories. You tell your mom, I want to be a football player. You're like, really? There's no money in that. Be a doctor, you know, <laughs> instead. The other two buckets that I'm obsessed with is the creative space and sports. We've talked about sports and athletes. You know the work that I've kind of done there in the past. So let's talk that aside. The creative space is also one that's incredibly important, whether it's you're an artist, you're a music performer, you're a writer, a poet, or even a bartender and a mixologist as well, too. I was very lucky to set up front back, and it wasn't just me. There were actually 12 of us. Um, we sat on my dining table in my parents' house like 10 years ago. We came up with the idea. We wanted to create something that basically showcased the best of what our continent can provide. You know, And back then, it wasn't so much of a thing. Now, huge spotlight You know, with... Black Panther and everything that's happened, you know, the whole world wants to look at us. And what we focused on was something that was quite simple and the concept has evolved over time and it's obviously a commercial entity now. And it was focused on music, food and art from Africa and its diaspora. The organization has been listed as the top 50 discovery bars in the world. There are only two in Africa. We just sent some of our mixologists who, who developed cocktails using stuff like Abrofoncatia and, and local bitters that they've developed, you know, really showcasing our produce and our craft and chocolate and things like that, you know, making their own bitters. They've now traveled the world. Some of them just got back from Singapore, you know, in cocktail competitions. They've been to places like Cognac, you know, or New Orleans and stuff. It's really, really, really important to understand that the creative space is something that's highly exportable from our continent. You don't need much. You can create art, you can create content and export it. It's actually easier than manufacturing and banking. And the second thing is you have to follow that framework. You know, you have to find out how you can structure something that provides people with opportunities. You have to be patient, just like we were with sports. And you have to, over time, nurture talent. And to tell them that this is a viable career, we will support you by paying you a salary. We will upscale and train you. And the opportunity for you is to actually showcase your craft outside of Ghana and outside of Africa as well, too. 
And it was that same format that was followed on the back of all that, you know? When I was in the UK the second time, which was in 2021, I got into a very random conversation that led me to eventually becoming a board member of an organization that is linked with the Commonwealth. And they are also linked with the National Liberal Club. It's also a private members club. And when I was going to their website, I saw a front back there. So it's like, if you were a member of the National Liberal Club in the UK, which is a giant institution with so much political history, um, just recently when I was in the UK, I got to have, give a talk there and all of that. So that was great. But I'm happy that from back as an institution itself is also not just living in Ghana, that because of these ties that it's building, it's really people who are over the, all over the world and are part of this different private members club can come and experience Ghana's art scene, like you said. And, and I like how you conceptualize it as a place where people can come and see the best of Africa, whether our food, our wine, our music, and the people. And when you go into the ambience, you can see it. Because the, tr the truth is that yesterday I was having a conversation with a tech founder who has gotten into YC and we're trying to apply to YC, my company, and we're just trying to get some insights. And the product they are building is simple, but it's not usually about the product, but the intentionality that went through it. And you can see that there are a lot of you know spaces that would probably try and mimic what Frontback is doing, but because of the intentionality and the frameworks that goes behind creating of the product, it comes out with a different scene and vibe, and people are more likely to go there. And then you keep asking yourself, but what is so special about the place? But it's because it has been actually crafted and curated. And I like that scene that thought process in the founders and how that eventually becomes life. You're 100% right. First of all, love that with the affiliate club, you know, from Ghana to the world, uh, we need more of that. But what I wanted to say is that you often find uh, longevity and higher success with purpose-driven businesses. And what's very important as a leader, when you're starting an organization, when you're trying to convince people to join you on that journey and, you know, regulators to give you licenses, et cetera, is why. So when you lead with your why and not with your how or your what, that's probably the best way to build a sustainable and scalable business. No, that's very true. Still staying on the arts, let's talk about the other arts endeavors that you're in. You sit on some of the boards of organizations that are trying to make sure that we can continue Africa's very vibrant, long history of arts collection and putting African arts on the global stage. Yourself, you are an art collector. My first question on that is, what is one piece that you own that is the most memorable for you? Oh my God, I have so many. I mean, there's one behind me there from a chap called Jarl Chikwama. Um, and it was a letter that he wrote as an apology to his father because he ended up going to art school when his father told him not to. He was basically, his father sits past, but he basically put these letters together to apologize to his father, but to also tell him that, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm established now and making a career out of it. So it really struck a chord, chord with me. I, I can't answer that question because there are a lot of people that will probably listen to this that will, will literally kill me if I don't mention their names. What I wanted to say is that it also kind of goes back to my upbringing, you know, kind of growing up in Kumasi, I was very close physically to KNUSD, which is obviously like such a hub for the arts in Ghana. My mom was a big supporter of the arts because there were a couple of professors that she was very close to at the university. And she sponsored a lot of like PhD students. She bought a lot of artwork to support the, the, the young artists. And so we grew up with all this like beautiful stuff around us, you know, and it was more modern than it was contemporary back in the day. 
so I grew up kind of, this was normalized to me. You know, you kind of bought art. It was part of what you did. And so when I got to the UK and I got that first job that you were talking about, and I got my first paycheck, you know, I'm bonus at the end of the year. I thought to myself, I want to buy a piece of art. I was 20, over 20 years ago now. I've been collecting art. I walked in. I still own it. I haven't really sold any of my artworks. And I looked at it and I said, that, that's what I'm buying. And this lady, snotty lady in this art gallery, it was all African art, by the way. It was a Ghanaian artist. She looked at me and she goes, you, little child, like, you know, how can you? I was like, whatever. I want it. I want it. I'm going to buy it. So paid with my card, rolled it up and walked away. And I've been on their mailing list since, by the way, for 20 years. And now we're friends. But, you know, a young, a young collector coming through and buying, you know, that's, that's had that influence your parents is quite important. So I've been not formally involved in the arts, but sort of a patron and a supporter of the arts for quite a while. And it's very important to me because artists are purpose-driven, right? I mean, they're, they're huge social activists. They speak the truth about what's going on in their parts of the world. And also from a development point of view, it makes sense for us to support the arts because these are highly exportable products, right? Because this artwork is from Nigeria. I bought it from a Nigerian artist. That an, that's an export that Nigeria has, has, has done. So, you know, it's something that's easy for us to export and to create. And it's something that can be bought by anyone around the whole world. So the organization that I joined and I sit on the board of is the largest contemporary African art fair. It's called 154, you know, one continent, 54 countries. We organized four art fairs around the world. Um, the biggest one is in London. It happened a couple of weeks ago. We get over 20,000 people turning up. This year we had 70 art galleries from around Africa and its diaspora. And they all land in London. It's at Somerset House. We take over the whole building. It's such an iconic building. And we turn it into basically this smorgasbord of beauty and impact, activism with the arts. It's really incredible. There was this amazing Angolan artist, performance artist last year that took over the central stage of a uh, courtyard of Somerset House. She recreated basically burnt embers of, of a slave ship. And she had a performance that had the whole audience weeping. And it's something that's so, so beautiful that you can create and that you can do and so much impact when you're explaining to the rest of the world what's happened, basically, of injustices, of activism through beauty as well, too, and performance. It's so important. So it's something that naturally I kind of grew up with and I formally support now and a lot of young artists as well, too, here in Ghana. I shouldn't use that term anymore. They're not young anymore. It's an established sector. And now they're teaching me more than I teach them, frankly, and they give me energy. Um, that's a very exciting scene, the art space, because we spent a lot of the uh, time on the podcast exploring arts in Africa. And we've talked to gallery owners like Adora Mba. We've spoken to artists. We've spoken to people who are in the academia. So we've had all the different perspectives across the arts. A question that comes to mind is a conversation we had with Kobinai Jari. Kobinai Jari is doing his PhD. He's also someone that was heavily involved in the arts while um, he was in Ghana and organized a couple of art fairs. And the question is that dichotomy between us as we know it and the people who make the arts, um, the communities where the arts come from, where sometimes they're not able to participate in the arts itself because you're saying, for example, the arts first and galleries are happening in London, happening in the beauty Somerset, how do we, and in your opinion of building a digital bank, building something that's close to home, close to people, everyday people, how do you, how do you conceptualize that bringing us close to the people and getting the participation of the ordinary people, even to the, to the point of buying the art 
of lavender ads or becoming curators, collectors of art too? So I think, I think first and foremost, we have to like do a bit of a rebrand and a PR when it comes to the arts, because there are some very affordable arts uh, that you can buy. You know, at 154, not everything is expensive. There is a bit of that sort of like distancing when you turn up and it's, you know, Somerset House, you think, oh my God, it's not for me, it's expensive. Yes, obviously there are expensive pieces, but there are entry points that are obviously much more affordable as well too. And there are huge pop-ups that have happened um, in Ghana, which are so important, you know, affordable art fairs that have been created as well too. But if you take a look, and we'll talk about like kind of the tech space in a moment, I'm sure, in the digital bank. But if you take a look at the arts uh, space, it's an entire ecosystem. You have the buyer, you have auction houses, you have art galleries. So obviously they sell to buyers. Then you have artists, but you also have intermediaries in, in between that are actually kind of incubators and collectives for artists. So there is one that I support here in Ghana that I absolutely love, and you should have them on your podcast next. It's called Art Martis, and it was set up by a guy called Selassie. And it's a house basically in Dansuman, and he's had some amazing artists that have come through that have been incubated in this space for a couple of years where they create artwork. They get supported, not just with art supplies, but a space to live in with some guidance and how to refine their craft. And they get then given the opportunity to connect to galleries and to auction houses as well, too. So it's sort of like an agency model where you get an agent, but it's an incubator as well, too. And these sort of institutions that are popping up in our part of the world, that's what really excites me right now. Because you're building capacity, you're educating basically artists on how to structure a contract with a gallery, etc. And you're actually nurturing not just talent, but also a buyer's market as well, too. And, and, and creating local buyers, which is also something that's very important. Because we should be supporting our own first before exporting them out there. Absolutely. And that's what my interest is, that... When you build a local arts market, then the market can then thrive here. People who may not be able to sell globally can sell locally. And then that enthusiasm would probably lead to the formation of uh, more art exhibitions, probably a countrywide arts, more art first that are local. Um, that would you know, bring more vibrancy into the space. But yes, now let's talk about affinity and what the goal of affinity is. You started off small consultancy, working with startups. How did that trajectory evolve into becoming this digital bank? And what is the vision of the organization now? All roads led to kind of setting it up because with what we're doing at Affinity, we serve a number of purposes, like traditional entrepreneurs, you know, the ones that your mom would be happy if, you know, uh, <laughs> if you told her that that's what you're doing as well as creatives and artists and sports people and, and all that too. So we wanted to serve a broader base market and provide them with affordable and convenient services that they can trust, because that's very important to us. So there are some high level stats I can give you and just to show you how broken the banking space is in our continent, right? 60% adults in Sub-Saharan Africa don't have a bank account. That's 400 million people, it's crazy. And what's very important to note as well too, is that we are, we're in a continent of 1.1 billion people it's projected to go up to 2.3 billion in 2050. And if we don't create more jobs, which is what small businesses do, it's expected that 86% of the world's poor by 2050 will live in Africa. So there's a huge issue there. We need to create jobs, which is very important. So when you have a segment of the market where you have 60% of adults that are not banked, that's 400 million people, how do you actually create prosperity? How do you create jobs as well too? The second thing that's quite shocking is that less than 10% of businesses have access to credit which is nuts, it's mind blowing. In Ghana alone, there's a lending gap of nine and a half billion dollars. It's hard to get a loan here. 
And then on top of that, in Sub-Saharan Africa, it's $331 billion. It's a massive opportunity. So put your commercial hat on. What we're doing at Affinity is very important. We're going after a big piece of the pie. So what does banking look like for us here in Ghana? Let's talk about an example, right? Traditional banks, and we're not talking about people like us. You know, we come from privilege. Talk about the average Ghanaian, right? If you look at a traditional bank, two issues. First of all, it's expensive. You don't get, you don't get access to loans high fees, high charges, you know, I'd rather keep cash. I don't want to put my money in a bank account and open a bank account. The second issue is that it's not convenient. If you think about that person you just bought your breakfast from this morning, I don't know if you had Hausa Coco, let's say, or something, you know, from, from a little stand on the side of the road. That's a sole entrepreneur. You're a micro-enterprise. When they step up from their pace of work and go to a bank, what happens with revenue? It goes to zero, right? So banking, traditional banking, are very inconvenient as well, too. Because time is money for an entrepreneur. I know that, right? My time is scarce for me as well, too. And I'm in a place of privilege. So wonderful innovations have happened because of the lack of specific design for the average African, like mobile money. Mobile money has solved a huge issue around convenience. There are agents everywhere. We use mobile money because it's convenient. But it is a restrictive product because there are limits to the accounts. You don't have like current accounts, savings accounts, investment accounts. It's sort of a monolithic product as well, too. So what we ended up deciding to do at Affinity is to build a digital retail bank. So we provide basically current accounts, savings accounts, investment accounts, personal loans, business loans. We do it in an affordable way. Our products are free, so we don't have any monthly charges. We don't have any... Uh, uh, transaction charges, unless, you know, it's put on us, basically, like, let's say it's an e-levy or whatever, we have to charge for those, obviously. Um, and on top of that, we provide interest across all our accounts, from our current account all the way to our investment accounts as well, too. So you will never leave Affinity with less money than you give us, unless, obviously, would, you would draw cash. We make your money work harder for you. It's very, very important. So that's sort of the purpose-driven element of what Affinity stands for. So there's that affordability, which is very important. The second thing that we've solved for is that convenience element. So we have an agency network. We're connected to mobile money. So you can move money in and out of your account uh, using mobile money, which is great. But on top of that, we're app-based. We're a digital bank. And the whole point of that is to create scale in, in a convenient manner for our customer base. Before I drill into the affinity part, maybe you can give a bit of an overview of what is out there in the Ghanaian banking space, or let's say digital banking space. Um, I mean, I used to come from finance in Ghana, and I kind of have a bit of a gap. So I have a high-level overview, but I'm wondering kind of, are there other developments, digital banks that have come up? And maybe what's the differentiator from Affinity to those? So we got the first license of our kind in 10 years. Um, so uh, I think we're the first to be able to provide full banking services as a digital bank. Uh, I don't think there's anyone quite like us. The, the one thing to answer your question, though, there are providers out there that provide singular products. So, so we're a one-stop shop for full banking services. So if you were to walk into a traditional bank, you would be able to get all our products basically from them. We do it in a digital way. The products and, that exist currently in the Ghanaian market are either like a consumer lending product, either a wallet, or perhaps a payments company. What we've done is we've aggregated all that together at Affinity, provided all that together at Affinity in a more affordable package, and we're a full-fledged digital bank, not a monolithic product. So Affinity builds its own payment processing systems. 
No, uh, we partner actually. So we're part of GIPS, so the interoperability, and we partner with payments providers as well too for interoperability. What we do is we hold, we have a license, where we have a banking license where we hold money on our account. So when you give us deposits, we collect deposits and we provide loans. That's sort of the core of what we do. And we have fully, it's fully cloud-based, fully digitally driven. We built the entire full tech stack. We partner basically with fintechs on the payment side. We're looking to launch cards. You know, we don't build our own issuer processing. We partner with someone on that as well too. Yeah, you mentioned the, the, the first license of its type in 10 years. So maybe you can go in a bit into that and maybe also, I mean, we know it can be challenging. Maybe you can tell us a bit about that journey. It was very difficult. So um, this November, as in next month, it'll be 10 years since the Bank of Ghana gave out a savings and loans license. Um, so obviously it's quite been quite a, a while since a license of our kind has been granted. And our license was granted last March. It was huge. You know, we were... We worked four years to get this license. It was a very long process. The way we did it is we bought a microfinance business in Ghana. It was very restrictive. We weren't allowed to launch apps. You know, we weren't allowed current accounts. But what we could do is actually try and understand our customer base. Because we're solving for, what we solve for at Affinity is for the majority of Africans. So we wanted to understand the relationship that our customers had with banks or financial services in general and technology as well, too. So we did a lot of work on the research side. With We have an incredible team. Everyone's getting in the team. Everyone's lived this problem before. If not directly, you know, our parents have lived that problem before as well, too. So we spent an inordinate amount of time on research, building our products, to make sure that our customer journeys are specifically built for our user type. Then what happened after that, once we kind of gathered enough information, we fundraised and we applied for our upgrade of our banking license. We aligned our interests with the regulator. We told them that, you know, what we're doing is supporting the unbanked segment of the market, the informal sector, who traditionally have not used bank accounts, have used cash or mobile money. And then on top of that, we said specifically we wanted to support SMEs. I'll give you a typical example. There is a lender that we've been lending to now. When he first joined us, he was basically taking photographs on the side of the road. You know, that sort of typical uh, uh, passport photo chap, you know, and kind of printing them and then you would come up and pick them up, Right. He had actually two employees. He started, he opened an account with us, started saving with us, borrowed 20,000 CDs to begin with to grow his business, uh, paid it back, borrowed larger amounts. His last loan was 200,000 CDs, right? So, you know, larger loans than digital lenders. He's now grown his revenue by 10 times, and he now has seven employees in the business. Thanks to us, he's grown by three and a half times. It's very, very important to understand how these SMEs and these customers grow their business, how they operate, and to provide them with products that are not just affordable, but also convenient as well, too. So when we gather all this information, we put a, a use case together to the regulator. They were amenable, basically, to, to, to providing us our license upgrade. COVID hit. <laughs> so it was such a drama at that point. There was a delay for a year and a half. We have very patient investors, luckily. You know, I use that word already before when you're building triathlon, when you're, you're building capacity for bartenders and athletes and all that. It's all an artist. It's all basically about patient and understanding what the strategy is. But we're at an inflection point now at Affinity. Um, it's been a wonderful kind of year the past year. We're growing the business. We piloted now what we're doing. And in the next kind of couple of months, we're kind of officially launching the business. So I hope you guys would be probably our first user case uh, to give us feedback on the app when it's out. That would be excellent to do. That would be excellent to do. So as a digital bank, do you have a physical locations or you are operating strictly online, which is some of the models we've seen outside? Yeah. So we have two channels. So we're not a neobank like a Monzo or Revolut, right? You know, uh, a, a, a Monzo can exist because the rails are there. 
there are a lot of digital natives. Digital natives like us are not that many in, in our part of the world. So we actually have two channels. We have the process and flow tech-wise is exactly the same. The front ends are different. The first is we have an app, download it, open an account, the usual. The second, which is the bulk of what we do, is actually an agency platform. So we have agents that can onboard customers. Then those customers can use a USSD channel to bank with us. So we have full interoperability with mobile money. You can transfer money from your MTN wallet into your Affinity account and vice versa. We don't have branches. So as a result, if you're in the north and you want to withdraw money from your Affinity account, you can transfer money instantly to your MTN account, go to an MTN agent and withdraw your money basically as well too. So we're a very complementary uh, product to mobile money and we work basically with the mobile money providers in Ghana. And what is the bigger vision? Because I know Affinity has vision that is beyond Ghana. How do we move from Affinity in Ghana to Affinity across the continent? And what are some of the other countries that perhaps you are targeting are launching the product in, in the near future? So we do want to become a Pan-African bank. We're debating whether or not we double down in Ghana in the short term because there's so much opportunity here. You know, there are 11 million adults in Ghana that don't have a bank account and a lending opportunity of nine and a half billion. So the market's big enough in Ghana, even though we're a small country compared to countries like Nigeria. Since we built all the tech, there are opportunities for us to scale outside, either partner with banks that want to launch an affinity type product or build affinity in other countries too. But there are plans for that. We, I can't answer the question because I'm, I'm very risk averse and it has to be a very measured approach to trying to understand what countries to go into. So that's very important. But even before we get there, there are a couple of big hurdles that we face. First and foremost, maybe more than a couple, three. First and foremost is trying to understand how the ecosystem in Ghana works, right? In the UK, it's very easy to plug into government systems. There are APIs. You can do instant digital banking. Our infrastructure is still quite young here. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done there, which is very important. The second thing is talent. You know, we're looking for good people. You can't just launch in another country unless you have a team that you, you know are competent, but also very importantly, their purpose and their values are aligned. Because if they don't have a, a, a good you know, stomach, startups are hard, you know, they're tough. And then the third thing is partnerships. You know, we're looking at partnerships from funders, from donors, from people who can support us in the tech space, you know, like, Mobile money is a partnership. We partner with MTN. You know, that things like that are really important because we succeed collectively together, not as, as individuals. So there's still quite a bit of work to do before even kind of thinking about how we expand outside of Ghana. I have a question on the talent, which is maybe a bit of a deviation, but because you have done so many things across different kinds of industries from creative to now the banking, yeah, I'm just wondering maybe how you view I mean, you mentioned the purpose part and the stomach for entrepreneurs, but maybe how you view talent and how you build like the culture within your companies, organizations. Look, I'm not going to lie to you, Daniel, we're still figuring it out. The difficult thing about us is we're not a typical tech company. We're a bank. And what that means is that there's a huge amount of regulation that's involved. We've heard of tech startups closing down because of poor compliance, you know, lack of understanding of regulation. At the core of what we do, we're adults in the tech space. At the core of what we do, we need to understand regulation. We need to understand compliance. We need to understand all those elements and the rule of law. Often that culture goes against the entrepreneurial culture of being innovative. How do you balance the two? And the way we do it, or we're trying to do it, is by leading by purpose and understanding to everyone going, we can solve this problem, this issue of banking in Africa. We can. Every problem has a solution, right? But the way we do it is to work collaboratively with people who have experience in banking, who need to sometimes unlearn 
the traditional banking away and then relearn. And then the other thing is you need that culture of innovation as well too. But within that innovation, you also need a framework to understand that it's not always no, no, no. But yes, we can do that. But these are the parameters we need to be aware of, where it, whether it's liquidity, whether it's KYC, you know, whether it's money, anti-money laundering and all those elements as well too, to try and understand what risk frameworks you can put together to work collaboratively together. We're probably in the third phase or iteration of culture at Affinity. I think we're getting there. I think the team's a lot happier, but there is a, a very careful balance that you have to put between the two because of what we do, because we are a bank at the end of the day. What about the lending problem? Like you said, it's a huge problem. It's a huge opportunity. I've had a lot of conversations with financial institutions and banks around that problem because when we're starting to think about a problem to solve with the startup I'm building now, we, we thought about a couple of things and lending was very prominent. It's still a huge problem. What is the unique way that Affinity is approaching the lending problem with? And even if, for example, it's solvable, how do you get in the $10 billion, the $9 billion into Africa to come and, come and close that gap? I mean, it is solvable. We've solved it. So uh, sorry to do the big reveal already. Um, and I'll give you some stats. So in Ghana, it's 9.4 billion is what the World Bank and McKinsey says is sort of the lending opportunity here. It's a problem, obviously, to government and to SMEs. It's an opportunity for us as a bank. But the one thing I wanted to say is that when we talk about lending opportunities, we talk about traditional loans. You know, when our parents went to a bank or and borrowed for their business, it was a five-year loan. That That's a traditional loan. I'm not talking about how it's delivered. I'm talking about the product itself. In order to give a five-year loan, it needs to be affordable. You can give a five-year loan at 15% interest a month, right? So I'm, I will explain to you what exists in the market, what additional product we're adding on top of that. And that example I gave you with the photographer that I was mentioning earlier on, what the opportunity was there as well, too, for an individual like him because of what we provided. So microfinance, it's an innovation, right? It was new banking that was developed what in the 80s. Uh, uh, Mohamed Yunus, an incredible man, got the Nobel Prize for it. It was all about small-term loans. The costs associated were high. You were collecting a dollar at a time, giving us $10 of loans. So the operating costs were quite high, right? So because the costs associated were so high, the interest rate on the loan was high because, you know, cost, pricing, profit, right? Not rocket science there. What happens when you can borrow $100 at 10% a month? It restricts you to working capital. So if I'm a woman that's selling tomatoes on the side of the road in the traditional microfinance sense, I can borrow from a microfinance institution $100 at 10% a month. I go buy tomatoes from a farm. I sell it within a week for $120. I pay back that loan for $10, $110, and I make a $10 spread, right? My profit is $10. That's how it works. Now, the problem arises when all of a sudden human nature kicks in. I'm a woman. I'm Business is booming. I want to go away from tomatoes now and a little stall. I want to build a kiosk. I need $1,000 to buy a container to spruce it up, right? Now, all of a sudden, if I'm borrowing for one month, I can't buy a container and pay back the loan in one month for $1,000. It becomes too expensive. I don't need a working capital loan. I need a growth capital loan. I need a loan that I can borrow to invest in my business. And the only way to do that is to manage your cost and reduce your costs as a bank. So you can extend a line of credit that's longer term. You have to reduce your interest rate. So a typical digital lender in Ghana lends between 7 and 16% a month. You start at the higher end, and they have a great purpose to play in this world and in this industry. 
But as you reborrow, it goes lower and lower and lower down to like 7%, I think is the lowest you can get at the moment in Ghana in the market. Our average at the moment is 4% a month. Our target is to go down to 2.8% a month. That's our target. So people can borrow longer term. So our loans at the moment go up to two years. People can borrow 200,000 CDs, which you can't from a micro lender or a digital lender. And they're longer term because our, as our interest rates go down, as we scale and we get benefits of scale, we will re reduce basically our cost of lending. And as a result, what, what, what can happen is the SMEs that borrow from us can actually grow their business as well too. And we'll begin to see more of that impact of that example that I gave you, that individual that was borrowing from us. I mean, that's excellent. If you speak to any bank, they are going to say, oh, people don't pay their loans, they are non-performing loans, they are this and that. How do you optimize for repayment in your institution? Do you want to guess what our non-performing loan is? You tell me. Please guess. Let me know. I have studied the space um, quite a bit. Globally, probably, I don't know, 1%, 2%? Because that's possible, right? That's possible. Do you know what the NPL is for Ghana at the moment, as of August 2023, for banks? No. 20%. Based on what you said on your interest rate, then definitely yours will already... I mean, also because of the way you're asking, but obviously it has to be... It has to be... It has to be so I'm giving you what? 8%. No, we're much lower than that. Actually, we're at 0.5%. We're at 0.5%. We've, we've helped customers save $26 million so far, and we've given out $12 million worth of loans. Um, our NPL at the moment is 0.5%. And the reason, there, there are a number of reasons. Number one, we have a strong bond with our customers. They understand what we do, and we're often the first time that they've been able to borrow kind of longer loans. So there's that loyalty, which is important. You know, when you build, sorry to use the word, but when you build an affinity towards someone, there is a bond that's kind of important. You had to, you had to. We had, a bit of, we had a bingo once in the office where anyone used the word affinity outside of the brand had to buy someone a drink at the end of the week anyway. The second thing that's important is as you reduce interest rates, obviously NPL goes down because if something's expensive, there's a higher likelihood that someone's going to default. And then the third thing that's very important is unlike a digital lender, we bank our customers. Our customers have accounts with us. So we know how much they save, we know how much money they make as an SME, and as a result, we have deeper insights and deeper data that can help us create better underwriting standards as well, too. It's a very traditional approach to lending, a very traditional approach to banking. We just do it a digital way. Exactly. And like you're saying, zeroing down the data sets that you get enable you to do that, because I think my insight is to lending B2B is basically understand how the business operates. And one of the things that banks do is the banks have no have no interest in knowing about the, 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 the business. Like they have no interest in gaining an affinity with the business. And so it, it, it eventually breaks them down because they don't know how these businesses are performing. And only when you actually want to help these businesses that you do so, you know, eventually banks will have to figure out a way to give businesses loans at a profitable rate, at reasonable interest rates, because they can't always be giving money to the, to the government and expecting that they're going to um, um, gain their money back from them. So look, I don't, I don't want to, I don't like banks do a great job in Ghana, but they do the job that they do in Ghana is providing loans to corporates. It's very dangerous to tell an existing financial institution to change the way in which it operates. They provide loans to, you know, big corporates in Ghana, trade facilities. They do a great job that way and they need to continue existing. Part of our success journey is if one of our customers grows too big for us and all of a sudden the banks are fawning over them, fantastic, and they upgrade from affinity to a bank, I will consider that a success story. I think, I think what needs to happen to support businesses like us that focus on a segment of the market that are neglected is better policies, better infrastructure, 
that a better ecosystem nurturing tech players because you know if we want to do id verification let there be a local tech company that we can partner with if we want to do payments let there be a tech company that we can partner with yada 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 you know that stuff is important to make our lives easier as well too a credit reference bureau and all that but better policies for that as well too or more effective policies and the other thing i wanted to say is that it is a very doable thing because what we do is we lead with our product our our, our deposit product right so that customer, Edward, that I was telling you about, he opened an account with us. He started saving with us. We saw his income coming in, how much money his business was making. We gave him a line of credit. I told you it was 20,000 CDs. He repaid it back. We gave him a larger loan. He repaid it back. His income grew. We saw it because it's coming through our affinity account. It's, it's a very patient, a very kind of measured approach to building a bank. And that's something that's very important. If there's one word I've picked up, in your approach towards life generally is patience. And I tell you, that's one thing I need more in my life. <laughs> I need a lot more patience in my life. So we should have another discussion somehow. Um, Tarek's approach uh, to patience, maybe one-on-one, and I come and attend that classes. When I got to Ghana, I was so arrogant. I was like, I know everything, you know, like everything's gonna work. Why do people complain all the time? I'm gonna do things the right way, et cetera. And I remember when I arrived, a lot of the returnees, like myself, my brothers who after university went back to Ghana, they looked at me and they were like, really? Be my guest, you know? <laughs> try, and, try and prove us. I mean, I was quickly, Isaac Daniel, I was quickly so humbled. And now I see returnees coming and saying, oh no, you know, I, I know the right thing to do. And I now look at them and I say, really? Be my guest? <laughs> Ghana and Africa, it will humble you. But again, when you're building a business, you have to put that. That's part of your plan. You have to say, I don't want to go from zero to 100, right? I'm at zero. My vision is to go to 100. My vision is to become Pan-African Bank. But you have to take steps to get there. What is step one? What is step two? What is step 10? What's step 50? What's step you know, 100 at the end of it? And every single time as you grow and you reiterate and you add new products and you reach new milestones, you can then figure out how to unlock that second stage of growth as well too. And that takes patience, it takes strategy, and it takes a very kind of big picture way of thinking through problems. Big picture way of thinking through problems, definitely. Um, excited about our conversation. One thing I cannot help myself but ask is that you are a board member for Greenlight Stage. I'm a huge fan of the performing arts. Everywhere I go, I try to go and see theater production, I mean, I'm a poor person who likes arts, which is interesting. Like you said, some people who are poor too can enjoy arts, you know? So I'm trying my best to do that. <laughs> but can we talk about that, what that is? You know, I don't know if you followed Ghana's theater scene. Uncle Lebo White's been doing some good work. My very good friend is called Chief Moomin. If you don't know him, I'm going to introduce you to Chief Moomin. But Chief Moomin just did a production in France at the UNESCO headquarters of Mansa Musa to tremendous success, and he's trying to take that story globally. So, I mean, Africa, that's where all the stories are. Can you tell us about what Green, Green Light Stage is about? And I'm also more, so more interested in how we can build maybe connection and ties to global production, theater production in, in Ghana across Africa. So um, I'm going to give you another one of my long tarot stories. I hope you don't mind. But I, when I moved to the UK when I was 12, my English teacher took us to go see a play. My mind was blown. You know, it was about existentialism. I mean, from a small boy growing up in Kumasi, going to see, it was Ben Kingsley was in this play. And obviously, because we're a school, we could only get the cheap seats all the way at the back. But I just sat there going, what on earth is going on on stage? My mind is, can you do this? Is this allowed? This doesn't follow the rule book that I grew up in Kumasi, thinking this is what is art or whatever. You know, it was really quite incredible. 
So I was enamored by it, by storytelling, by how these amazing stories that the global north had told about themselves to keep themselves relevant, because history is told through stories, right? It's cataloged through books, through plays, it's reenacted, it's Shakespeare is such a relevant playwright because the themes that go through his, his plays are still relevant. You know, Macbeth with crime and punishment, um, um, Romeo and Juliet because of infatuation, I don't want to say love. <laughs> you know, these stories stay relevant as well too. So I became absolutely obsessed with that sort of element of storytelling and you can see it in the arts. You know, I told you the story about the amazing Angolan artist that performed at 154 last year with the, with the slave ship uh, that she kind of put together with embers. It was really quite incredible. So on the back of all that, it was the old Vic that I watched this, this uh, play at. And then I kind of, when I was uh, in, in the finance space, we sponsored a few productions at the old Vic. I got to know them. And then I joined their production team as a board member that you sort of spotted uh, there as well, too. Through that, I met this incredible playwright. Her name is Diana Atwona, Nigerian-British. And she wrote a play called uh, Liberian Girl, which was at the Royal Court. And it was really incredible. It blew my mind. I met her later on at the Old Vic. She actually ended up doing a project with the British Council and came to Ghana and worked with Chief Moomin, by the way. I, what, I was introduced to him on WhatsApp, but we ever, never actually met. So I, I, I would love an intro to him just to talk to him and to sort of catch up on all of that because it would be amazing. Because storytelling and exporting what, what, who we are and what we do on the continent is so important. And you can, you can do that through our products, uh, you know, from chocolate and, and you can do it through arts. You can do it performance arts as well, too. All that stuff is incredibly important. The other person that I kind of got to know that's in the space, in the performance arts, and her, her studio, uh, Tara Alta, is just around the corner here in Jowalu, is an amazing woman called Elizabeth Sutherland as well. The work that she does is really quite extraordinary. And uh, she's at the moment on tour in Europe. And I, I'm so proud when I hear about those stories. By the way, I haven't supported any of these people. I'm not taking any credit. I just watch as a, as a fan, you know, observing how they can leapfrog all sort of the restrictions they have with a lack of funding, a lack of electricity, a lack of theater space and all that. And you still succeed in an environment like this. You know, they should be applauded and they should certainly be su supported as well too in every single sense of the word. I think it's brilliant, especially because of the climate fund and et cetera. Chief Moomin, I think, team now in France as a 60-person stage performance and to travel with that number to do anything in the country on the charter flights. I don't know how you found a way to resource that. It's, it's extraordinary. And I just wanted to say something, sorry, because I sorry to interrupt you. You said something that upset me earlier on. You said that you can't afford uh, uh, the art or theater and performances. So I want to, I want to say a couple of things. Number one, the UK is great at like providing 10 pound tickets, you know, for students and whatnot and early bird specials. So they're heavily subsidized by big banks that provide it. We should do, I, I'm getting to the, I, I want to get to the point where Affinity can support basically the creative arts as, as a sponsor and subsidizing tickets at the national theaters. So you have it in, in, in evidence now that maybe in five years time, if we're a successful business, which hopefully we are, you know, we'll, we, we, we commit to that. The one thing I wanted to say is that there's some amazing artists that are actually exhibiting in the UK now. Ellen Atsui, who is a legend, as I'm sure you guys know, he just did the iconic Turbine Hall and it's actually free. All you do is just turn up and you can watch it. There's also Chris Ophili that's based in, in, I think he's Nigerian of origin, but he's based in Bermuda or something now, but he's done a great sort of mural in public space at the Tate Britain as well too. So there are huge amounts of opportunities to actually enjoy the arts for free. You just need to get on ma people's mailing lists and actually turn up to them as well too. And there's certainly a lot of opportunities here in Ghana as well. So I wanted to spell that myth, art is affordable. 
number one day spots for young people um, is going to an art gallery and, you know, taking pictures. So definitely that has reduced the burden on young people to go and buy expensive food. So I, I mean, obviously I can't relate again too, but no, no, I was just, I just wanted to tell Tarek when you open your affinity account, you will see the actual cash flows of Isaacs. <laughs> Legally allowed to anyway, I'm not in the compliance team. So unfortunately I wouldn't have, but I will ask him for some screenshots. I will ask, ask him for some screenshots that whenever he buys artwork using his affinity account or a ticket uh, to maybe one of Elizabeth Sutherland's plays or something like that, I will ask him for evidence of that. Uh, it's been an amazing conversation, Tarek, uh, across everything that you've done and the huge influence that you've had on all these spaces that you have been. I like the full circle moments that you've gone through, you know, especially like going to the Old Vic and then eventually becoming part of the institution. It's a very full circle moment, even with Affinity and everything that you've done. Incredible journey. Last question that I wanted to ask you is, yeah, talk to, talk to us about that kind of Ghanaian Lebanese heritage and what that brings into the, the work that you've done and the influence that you've had in, on, the, on the culture, on the works that you've done. Uh, thank you. And it's a, it's a really interesting question. No one's ever asked me that before. But let me maybe focus on the Lebanese side, because I think I get my entrepreneurial spirit very heavily from that, even though obviously we have a, a huge culture of entrepreneurialism in, in Ghana. We're... The Lebanese are displaced people. You know, they've, they've been leaving the country, their country for a very long time, always landing in places where they've had to survive. And I think a part of that has led itself to be a bit more entrepreneurial, a bit more survivalist in their methodology as well, too. And as a result, you know, when you're in an environment where you're different and um, if it's optically or culturally or whatever it is, it almost gives you like a hunger or a drive to succeed and be better. You see a similar thing basically with the Indian population that leaves India as well too. And obviously that is in India, you know, in East Africa, in countries like the UK as well too, there's always sort of that entrepreneurial spirit, which is quite important. So I don't think there's anything particular about our genes, frankly. I think it's just the nature of, of being displaced and not specifically maybe perhaps having a home, but wanting to like land on our feet and 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 make it somewhere. And we're, we're, we're you know, we take a lot of risk. I, I know lots of Lebanese entrepreneurs in Sierra Leone during the crisis that stayed there and never left because it was their home as well, too. So I think I owe a lot to that sort of element. And I, even though I don't sort of maybe perhaps consider myself fully Lebanese because I've never lived there and our family left so long ago, I respect that that has been part of my upbringing and my culture because it's what my parents learned from their parents and what their parents, uh, my grandparents had from their parents as well, too which is what I've inherited by growing up in a Lebanese household. So hugely thankful for that. And I'll help you find a wife. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Tarek. It's been an exciting conversation with Tarek Mugani, who is the CEO of Affinity Bank and has a fleet of other wonderful achievements in sports, arts, entertainment, name it. Um, and it's a real Iron Man and hypothetical Iron Man too. Thank you very much, Isaac. Thank you, Daniel. Excellent, excellent. The Change Africa podcast is produced by Isaac Abwa and Daniel Murky. It is executive produced by Tim Yarstratus. The theme music and digital production is by Daniel Quay and graphic design by Andrew Ayi. This podcast is a production of Nexa Media.